Welcome to the Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive, where you have access to all the amazing insights Dr. Finlayson Fife has shared through hundreds of interviews. I'm Mackenzie, Dr. Finlayson Fife's assistant, and we are so glad that you're here. Today's episode was originally produced and published by the Q More Podcast. It's a fun, quick, and insightful episode that they titled the sex talk we all deserve with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson-Fife. We are so excited for you to hear it. But before jumping into the episode, we have something exciting to share with you. Hi, everyone. Jennifer here. I just want to let you know that we're going to be having three Art of Desire events this late summer and fall. Two of them are going to be three-day retreats in Hillsboro, Oregon, which is right outside of Portland. We don't have a lot of spots left, but we do have about 30 in the August event. And this is an exceptional opportunity to come and spend three days with first a group of exceptional, earnest women who are seeking to become stronger, better people, more at peace with themselves, but also an opportunity to get away from your family and have some time to reflect on your life, your self-development, your desire, your relationship to your embodiment and your sexuality, and to become a woman who is more self-confident, more at peace with herself, more accepting of herself, and more ability to make sense of and come to a deeper peace with your sexual nature. This is an exceptionally fun, rejuvenating three days. I can't say enough good about it. It's my absolute favorite um, way to be involved with people. It's really remarkable the transformation that I see in the women over the course of these multiple days. You can find out more about the event on my website um, and this is a Sunday evening to Wednesday evening event. The meals are included There's a movie night, there is yoga and exercise and meditation, but also exceptional instruction. Don't mean to brag, (laughs) but you know, content that I've really cared about and invested a lot of myself into. If you aren't able to attend one of the three-day retreats, we will also be having a two-day workshop in Dallas, Texas in September. And this isn't an overnight event with meals. It's a less expensive way to get access to the Art of Desire content. And so it's also an exceptional option. And I think we have about 10 spots left there. So jump on over to the website. You can learn more about the workshop, the two-day workshop or the three-day retreat. And again, I get, hope I get to see you at one of these events. I'm sitting down for a conversation about sex with Dr. Jennifer Fenlayson Fife. For those of you who aren't familiar with her, she's a relationship and sexuality educator and coach, as well as a licensed clinical professional counselor in Illinois with a PhD in counseling psychology from Boston College. It only took me four tries to say that. Okay? It's going to be great. But first, I want to tell you guys a story. Before my interview with Dr. Finlayson Fife, I posted a series of questions and polls on my Instagram stories. I really like doing this, like I do it a lot, because I feel like it really helps me better understand where you guys are at on a topic, helps me clarify where I stand on a topic, 
It's just very educational, and I like doing it. There was a handful of people, we would say like a small gathering of people who thought that I was secretly engaged, and this is how I was learning about sex. And I'm just going to give you guys my word right now that if slash when I get engaged, I will not announce it via sex questions on Instagram. Okay? You have my word. But I do think this is a pretty good example of something I want to address like right out the gate. We have no idea how to talk about single adult sexuality within our culture. We just have no idea how to address it. And I'll just say, in my humble opinion, anyone who says the For the Strength of Youth pamphlet is a valid guide for adult, single adult sexuality, either got married and started having sex before the age of 25, so they just have no idea what they're talking about, or they're not being totally honest. And I think it's so important to address this right out the gate because This episode is for everyone. It's for people who have sex, people who are preparing to have sex, and people who just wish they could be having sex, and anyone in between, okay? It's for everyone, and that's actually one of the very first things that I spoke to Dr. Finlayson Fife about. We're sexual beings from birth. We really are. We're sensual creatures. Our sexuality is immature, of course, when we're young, but it's just a part of being human, being embodied. So I think because we have it so much of a way of thinking of it, that it is only legitimate within marriage and otherwise it's scary or a threatening part of ourselves, our our knee-jerk response is to just kind of distance from any real awareness of it. And in my opinion, that interferes with our kind of integration of our sense of self and our sense of God and our sense of goodness with our embodiment and sexuality. So while you may not be actively sexual when you're single, it's still good, even in preparation for a long-term loving relationship down the road, to really be at peace with your sexual nature. I love this idea of getting really cozy with the fact that we are sexual beings. Sexuality is not this exterior thing, bad before marriage and good after and activated when you say I do. It's a part of who we are as healthy humans. So I'm in a few LDS women's Facebook groups, and every now and then I see posts from young engaged women that say something along the lines of, I'm engaged and I'm having a really hard time maintaining pure thoughts and I feel really guilty about it. I asked Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife what she would advise these women. Well, I would say two things. One is if you're having a hard time with pure thoughts, that's probably a good sign. (laughs) And congratulations. (laughs) Meaning it means the sexuality of the relationship is there. It feels good. It feels powerful. That's all great. Where I think we tend to go in a way that's not helpful is more like the emergence of sexuality is a problem. Something's wrong with us. It's defective of us or unrighteous of us. 
I just don't think that's very helpful thinking. I think it's much better to think, no, this is a an, a relationship based on choice and attraction and desire. So it's a good thing we're having these feelings. If we weren't having them, there would be much more reason to be concerned. What I would say though is it's much more valuable for you as an individual to put it in a frame of what you're choosing and why you're wanting to kind of not indulge those feelings for lack of a better way of saying it, or why you're choosing to not move forward because you're waiting to get married, that when you put it in a frame of I'm choosing this, so there's nothing wrong with these feelings, they're great, but we want to wait till we're married. And so we're making that choice deliberately and thoughtfully. That's the right meaning frame to have in your mind. Okay, pause. Take a deep breath and just breathe in that empowerment. You are refraining from sex, not because it's bad, not because you're scared of bad things happening to you, but because you're simply choosing to wait. Think about what that does to the natural struggle people face when they're told sex is bad their whole lives, and then they're suddenly supposed to be comfortable going from zero to 100 in one night. I would just never go zero to 100 in one night. And you can figure out for yourself like how much latitude you feel is wise and right before marriage versus after marriage. But if you've been very, very conservative leading up to the altar, which is completely fine, especially if it's choice-based, right? I mean, when people make choices and it's deliberate, they're going to be fine because their sense of self is in the choice. It's not repressing the self. But let's say you've made that choice. Then you give yourself a lot of room. Now just think of it as, okay, we're still dating, but if we mess up, quote, unquote, it'll be fine. <laughs> okay. So that is to say, I would not make it as like, now we have to do this. I would just now say like, let's start to explore more of our bodies. Let's develop more eroticism. And we can even pretend or play with the idea that it's still forbidden. Because sometimes when things become too legal too quickly and they and they start to cross over into I should, the chemistry of desire goes away. We as sexual beings love the sense of freedom and choice. It's very fundamental to desire. And so if you put your sexuality in the frame of should and obligation, it will evaporate immediately. And lots of people have testimonies of this because that's how they entered into marriage. Like it was all there. Then they went to the altar. They're on their way to the hotel and they're like, oh my gosh, I feel nothing. <laughs> and I mean, I'm laughing like it's funny, but it's shocking. It's like a cruel joke or something. But that's because the meaning has now changed suddenly and they have not seen how it's changed. But now their sense of self is gone from the sex. And then also men have this real ambivalence where they often grow up learning that their sexuality is maybe a given if they're a man, but it's something they do to a woman and it can actually be destructive to her. So we have this complicated message we give men. So a sensitive guy doesn't want to do to a woman what she doesn't want done to her. And so he may want to have a sexual relationship but is then kind of looking to her to make it okay. She's looking to him to make it okay. Nobody can make it okay. <laughs> and so these things fall apart really fast. They really do because people are bringing into their marriage the meanings that they can't leave at the altar. I mean, they can't. It's like, wait, this is a dangerous activity we're engaging in. And so if they can't see how it can create goodness, 
even though there's lots of ideas around there about it creating closeness and all that, a lot of people just can't see how it's going to do that when they feel like they're playing with fire. Ah, playing with fire. If there was a bingo card for every youth law of chastity lesson, playing with fire would basically be the free space. You know, tell me I'm wrong. And the space right next to it would be masturbation. We're pretty afraid of masturbation, I think, for a couple of reasons. We, first of all, are afraid of eroticism. And what I mean by eroticism is the sexual thoughts that we have. Like, I think if we can say, well, it's just about reproduction or feeling close to your spouse, everybody can kind of handle that idea because it's about love or creation of a child. I think the part that we have a hard time culturally discussing is the kinds of thoughts that are a part of sexuality often that are often unruly. So I think because that makes us anxious, and I understand why that makes us anxious, it's not some easy, you know, link between sexual thinking and a sense of what goodness is. And then I think the other thing that makes us anxious about it is we want the idea that our spouse's sexuality will reinforce us and our desirability. So there's kind of a cultural collusion in the idea that your spouse's genitals belong to you, that they should be there to reinforce you as a person. Now, I'm all for fidelity. I'm all for commitment. I think the best, most joyful context for good sex is a loving, committed partnership. That said, making it so that your sexuality is only legitimized by your partner that you shouldn't touch your own genitals, it belongs to your future spouse or your current spouse, whatever. It sets up a meaning frame that makes it impossible to actually create intimacy and freedom and a sense of choice that's fundamental to a good sexual relationship. I wouldn't say I'm pro-masturbation. I would never put it like that. I am in favor of people having a sense that their sexuality belongs to them, that it's God's gift to them, And that how they're in relationship to their sexuality and the peace they feel in their body is very critical to being able to create a loving, intimate partnership. Because if you have no self to share, you can't create a shared reality. Mm -hmm. And you have no sexual sense of self, you can't create a shared intimacy. And so being at peace with your body is the core issue. That doesn't necessarily require, you know, self-stimulation, but I don't think we should be so terrified of the idea of it because it's a pretty normal part of sexual development. And what role can masturbation play in helping a woman who is having sex but struggling to orgasm? For starters, it's two pieces that I think are valuable in that. If you're in a sexual relationship and you just haven't been able to sort out how to orgasm, getting yourself off stage is helpful. So if you have this feeling that, you know, you have to produce something and he's bored and, or you fear that he's bored, even if he's a generous and good partner, that, you know, just that added anxiety, anxiety goes against orgasm. So the more anxious you are and the more self-judging you are and the more fearful you are, it's working in all the wrong directions. So just to get yourself to have a little less anxiety to manage is helpful. It also allows you to control the stimulation and to kind of figure out, do I like this? Do I not like this? Does this feel good? Does this not feel good? And not have to be coordinating with your spouse just yet. 
And then I think the third thing is it's just valuable from a meaning frame of, you know, this is God's gift to me. This is my body. This is my vulva. You know, how how can I come to be friends with her, you know, and accept her? Because a lot of women have been very afraid of their genitals. Like the body is good except for the bad parts, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a lot of people kind of instinctively have that sense. And and so they're afraid to even look at their own genitals. They're afraid to know them. It's very, very hard to create intimacy if you're afraid to even know your own genitals. So there's something about just befriending, creating some peace with your own body, not so that you can go in the basement and, you know, shut out all relationships and and masturbate for the rest of your days. (laughs) But yes, I think we're just afraid if you give a little inch, the next thing you know, you'll be in this debaucherous indulgence and ruin your life. And obviously, we don't want to do anything that derails us from a moral ethical core. We must be anchored into a self-respecting and other respecting reality. But just to know pleasure doesn't mean you will then have no moral anchoring. In fact, in my experience, women, as they come to feel a deeper sense of acceptance of their sexuality, of their embodiment, of God's gift to them, they're much more able to let their spouse in on it and to create something good with him. I found that the spouse thing is like an interesting component in talking to women is that there's also, and it's the same thing with like, if they are possibly interested in introducing toys into their sexual relationship, or even it's just like, my spouse does this thing and it hurts, or I don't like it, or it doesn't feel good. There's so much fear about communicating with their spouse about what they like or dislike or what they want to do or they don't want to do out of fear that they're going to hurt them. They're going to feel rejected. What what would you advise someone? Well, two things. One is that you know, sometimes when people are struggling with communication, the core issue isn't, can you say the words? It's whether or not they believe they deserve to be half of that partnership. Oh, wow. Right. And whether or not they believe that what they like matters as much as what their husband likes matters. And a lot of women have learned what the husband likes is the big thing because my sexuality exists for him. He gives me the paycheck and the house, and I give him the sex. And a lot of people just, they've never said it like that to themselves, but that's the implicit understanding. So who am I to say what I like and don't like? That's the problematic reality right there. It's not set up on a framing of a partnership of two people whose sexuality may be different, but both matters. And so how can we create something that's shared and joyful for both? Because if that framing's in place, well, it might be not so fun sometimes to hear what your spouse wants that isn't the same as what you want. But you're at least working from a frame of, well, what we both want matters. How do we how do we think about this? How can we create something that's fulfilling for both? So much of the work I do is around reframing this idea that sexuality is for men, because it goes badly for men and women when we think that. And that women's sexuality is incredible, actually. It's different than men's. Women are slower to arouse, but stay aroused longer. Women, the meanings of the relationship are very foundational in desire, where men are more visually driven. And you know it's because of testosterone. There's lots of good reasons for this from our biological foundation. But we sometimes make the mistake that because men arouse more quickly, that they are more sexual. 
when in reality, women, when they have enough self-respect and freedom within themselves to express who they are, you know, women's sexuality is remarkable. Women have very, very high sexual capacity, but women are pickier. And so oftentimes that combination of men's anxiety about sex, or I'm just going to take what I can get because I don't know if she ever will get aroused, that kind of thing, it, it cheapens it and it reduces the sexual experience down to something that's pretty unsatisfying for both ultimately. We're just going to take a quick break so I can tell you about this episode's sponsor and a special discount code just for you. For those of you who follow me on Instagram, you know my deep love for my menstrual cup. I'm like borderline a cup bully. They're way better for the environment, a much healthier option for your body, and it's a one-time purchase for like 10 plus years, so they're way better for your wallet. But not all period cups are created equally, which is why I want to tell you about the Bloody Buddy Cup. I've been using my Bloody Buddy for years, but when I made the switch from tampons to cups, there was an absolute learning curve. Lots of people give up on cups because they can't figure them out. The incredible women behind the Bloody Buddy Cup engineered and designed them to be easy to use. They have a patent pending design with an inner ribbing that makes the cup practically pop open and unique details like a wavy grip and a pincher bulb that makes the cup better than anything else on the market. So whether you've tried period cups in the past and had a bad experience or you're totally new to them, I want you to check out bloodybuddycup.com. They have a super helpful website that walks you through everything you could need to know about a period cup to be sure that you're as successful as possible. They really make it so easy every step of the way. And when you're ready to make your purchase, use code QMORE, that's Q-M-O-R-E, to claim a very special discount just for the QMORE community. One of the least appealing things that I've been told about sex my entire life is that it's going to hurt. It might be a little uncomfortable, but I don't think you should endure pain. I think, though, that what is probably more typically the issue is that the anxiety is very high. It's like, well, it's the honeymoon night. Here we go. Brace yourself. And so you're not lubricated. You're not opening up as a function of your arousal. You're, you know, kind of seizing internally and therefore it's painful, which will make you be even more anxious the next night. So that's why it's all the better to give yourself time. And, you know, you don't need to have a successful intercourse the first time. It could be even partial and you're just allowing your body to stretch a bit, but you're using arousal as the pathway. Would you suggest new couples using lube when they start? Yes. Why not? And if you feel like, okay, look, we're plenty aroused and we don't need the extra lube, but for a lot of people, lube is a good starting place for sure. One thing that I want to jump in and mention is a diagnosable condition called vaginismus. I'm probably saying that wrong, but what you need to know is for some women, because of fear and anxiety, their body's natural reaction is to tighten the vaginal walls so much so that a penis cannot come in. If you're experiencing this, please know there is nothing wrong with you. All you need to do is talk to your doctor, receive some treatment, and then you're ready to rumble. And I want to validate that talking to your doctor about this kind of thing can be really hard, but taking ownership of your sexual experience and advocating for yourself is so worth it. 
I asked Dr. Finlayson Fife if she's observed people struggling to take ownership of their sexuality when they seek permission to masturbate, use toys, or have oral sex. The permission thing, I give disqualifiers on it a lot because it's part of the way that people tend to orient to these questions. That is, they're looking for an authority to tell them what's the right way to be human. And there's nothing wrong. You have to start there. It's it's an important place to start, to look to wise others to help you think about how to be responsible and loving in your relationship to sexuality or into relationship with other people, meaning we need to take the frames that our culture gives us and work with those. And the truer they are, the better off we'll be. But part of spiritual development and relational development is to grow into a person more and more wise with a deeper and deeper internal integrity-based relationship to what is true. You know, in our way of talking and thinking, a deeper relationship to God to the divine, to what is in fact right, and that we're not so dependent on compliance as a way of telling us we're the right kind of person, because that keeps us in a dependent and spiritually less mature position. It's a good starting place, but we really have to grow beyond it. And that means we have to push ourselves more to live what we honestly believe is true. If you're going to be a strong person who feels free to be known and to know and free in your life, you have to push yourself to develop an honest internal anchor about what is true, about who you are, and about how you are in relationship to yourself and those you love. I think that's so important because I think if you take that overarching principle, it gives the person the power to figure it out themselves. Yes, that's right. And to really be at peace and they can take it up with God and they can take it up with their conscience and their spouse, and but they can really come to an honest peace and feel freedom. But it, just like with the women in my dissertation, the women who decided to obey the law of chastity or to say that's what they wanted, but they did it from a sense of this is what I desire. This is what I feel good about. This is what I want. They did great. Women who were like, well, I, I should and no man's going to want me if I don't, and I'll disappoint the bishop and God and my boyfriend. They did behaviorally the same thing, but they had no self to share. There was no sense of freedom. There was no sense of peace. So it's the spirit of the principle is really, really important. Why am I doing what I'm doing? And am I taking responsibility or am I hoping for some reward for it, for compliance down the line, which is more authority-driven and looking for rewards as opposed to how do I live my life the most honestly and with the most integrity that I can. If you're struggling with some of these things, it doesn't mean that you're broken. It's just a developmental process to grow into somebody who can accept her or his sexuality and be at peace with herself or himself. That's just part of being human. It takes time. Depending on the family context you come from, some will have a head start on that because they grew up in a family where they were taught to respect themselves, taught how to embrace themselves, had parents who were at peace in their own skin. Those are the lucky ones because they have a a head start. But even if you came from meanings that have set you up for the difficulties that you have, that you can keep growing and learning. And the more you wake up and see, the more you can take different action 
and change the meanings that you're participating in. And while it can often be painful and disappointing, it's part of what it is to be human. And I think shaming ourselves for that is not helpful. It doesn't get us closer, but instead allowing ourselves to be in this process of learning and changing and growing because, you know, a lot of people, their best sex is after they're 50. I mean, we don't, you know, cosmopolitan, you think it's all happening when you're 25, right? And maybe your body's more responsive at that age. But as you get older and you develop more maturity and more self and more peace and more ease, the sex gets better and better. Can we all just let out a collective sigh of relief? No matter what you were taught growing up or what your experiences have been in the past, with the help of honest communication with yourself and your partner, you can work towards a better sex life. And I don't know who doesn't want that. If you want more information and instruction about the topics discussed in this podcast, please visit my website and take a look at the events and online courses I offer. Links can be found in the show notes below. 